Welcome to the Raising Sons podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Whitaker, but you can call me Dr. Shell. I'm a parenting advisor, educational psychologist, licensed maternal mental health therapist, and mom. On this podcast, we'll cover everything you need to know about raising sons. Now, let's get into the show. Hey, hey, it's Dr. Shell with another episode of the Raising Sons podcast. Today, we're talking about, or we're continuing discussion, talking about how to talk to your son about dealing with the police. Now, I'm just going to be upfront and honest. I really struggled with having this conversation. My sons, uh, one of my sons, Godfathers, is a policeman, and I I just really struggled with this, especially it was around the time of, of George Floyd, and just a lot of things were happening. And so I'm just going to let you in on the conversation that I had with him. So the nature of my personality is kind of not to back down. I'm uh, a nonconformist. And so um, the whole way that, you know, um, my sons have to deal with the police is it's just hard for me to grasp where it was at the time because I just was like, why do they have to do all of this um, when, you know, they may be pulled over and it may they may not have done anything. And so we had this long, drawn out conversation. And, you know, I, I had feelings about the police, even though my son's godfather, you know, um, is police. And so um, he was, you know, explaining to me just, you know, my husband was chiming in on the conversation, but, you know, the importance of it. And he was like, what you want to have happen in the end is you want your son to make it home. Right. And I was like, yes. So he was like, there are some things that he's going to have to do um, to do that. And sorry, but not sorry. Right. He's like, I didn't make the rules. It's unfortunate. It shouldn't be like this, but this is how it is. And so, like I said, I, I really struggled with that. And I think more of the struggle came because I just, it's just so unfair. And, um, I almost felt like my son has to kind of cower down. They kind of have, they will have to kind of cower down um, just to make, you know, make it home safe. But again, I had to use my own words, you know, the end from the beginning, start from the end from the beginning. And what is the optimal goal? And the optimal goal is that they get home safe. And so what he was telling me is, you know, him, my husband, other men that um, I've talked to about this particular topic is, you know, keep your hands at 10 and 2. Um, make sure that when you're pulled over that you have, you know, your hands at 10 and 2, you don't re- that they don't reach for anything, that um, anything that is needed, um, that is, you know, the, the police are giving the directions, that they follow the directions, um, that, you know, it's, they don't turn it into an argumentative kind of situation, that they just, you know, respond, keep their hands up to where they can see them. So there's no miss, uh, they're not misconstruing them trying to reach for something. Um, And then talking to your son about having this conversation about what happens when they get pulled over by the police, you know, when they start, before they start driving um, so that they are aware, Uh, talk to them about getting home, right? Because, you know, sometimes if you're, your sons are younger, they may be a little bit more like hot headed, like, I don't feel like I should have to do this kind of like I did, but really emphasizing to them that the whole goal is for them to get home. And then using examples about times when, 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 um, black men didn't make it home when they were, you know, stopped by the police. And so just reemphasizing that to them and letting them know that, you know, if you don't follow these things, and sometimes even if you do, there's a possibility that you, you know, you, you may not make it home. And so just making them aware, right? 
um, knowledge is power. And so, you know, of course, you want to teach them about um, keeping their hands at 10 and 2, not reaching for anything, not being argumentative, um, making sure that they have, you know, the necessary documents at hand, that they're driving with their driver's license and they have insurance um, and that they know where it is, that when it's asked for, that they can easily get to it, um, that it's, you know, not out of out of sight, that they don't, that they aren't riding in a car with a whole bunch of other boys. Um, I know my husband said that when he was growing up, that there was a limit, like it was like three in the car, <laughs> not four, but three. Um, and so not driving in a car with a whole bunch of boys, um, just these are some of the things that he shared with me that I am sharing with you. So making sure that you talk to your son about all of these things before and making sure that they're ready to, to deal with, you know, the things that come with driving and the things that come with dealing with the police. Um, and, you know, not thinking that it won't happen to your son, um, is, is not the best way to go. Right. Because, um, we know that, you know, things happen to kids and, you know, they're not even, they may not even be the one driving. They could be the one in the passenger seat. So just making them aware of what's coming with them driving, how to handle it, how to manage it. Right. Cause the key to doing anything is one, knowing what may happen, and then two is being prepared for that situation. And so you want your your sons to be prepared. You want them to be knowledgeable. You don't want them to be caught off off guard. And um, you want at the at the end of the day, you want them to get back home. And so um, I would just say that it's you know just keep those things in mind. I know that it seems unfair. Um, the idea of it, you know, just sometimes brings me to tears that in 2022 that I still have to have these conversations with my son because, you know, racism exists. And um, someone may look at my son and see him as a threat before they even know him or know his name or know anything about him. And so just on the basis of his skin color. And so um, I have to take my emotions out of it and I have to think about the end from the beginning and making sure that my, my sons get home okay and giving them the tools um, and the, the resources to do that, um, in such a manner. And so again, um, if this is a difficult conversation for you to have with your son, I'm, I'm of the utmost encouragement that difficult conversations are necessary and they're needed, right? You learn a lot, they learn a lot, but, you know, I do understand that this may be one that, you know, gets you emotional. And so you don't want your son to be, um, seeing you, um, a highly emotional with this topic because then he's going to feel some kind of way. So if you are highly emotional about this topic, either wait to have this conversation with him or allow his father or another male figure to have this conversation with him. And then maybe you come in on the, on the backside of it and just kind of reiterate to him, um, you know, the importance of it and, or address any questions that he may have. Um, so yeah, I know this is hard, um, but it is necessary and um, I think with knowledge and preparation, um, those two things are key. So if you, you know, I think these are good things that you can do to help your son um, deal with the police. I want to share with you all a panel discussion that I did with men in my local community around um, dealing with the police and just raising black sons. It was around the time of George Floyd again, and there was a lot of anxiety and fear around um, black moms. And so wanting to just hear from their perspective on how they've managed and um, how they dealt with, you know, dealing with the police and other 
things that they had to deal with as black men. And so, so this is what you guys are going to hear a portion of that audio. All right. So we are, we are live on Facebook. I am Dr. Rochelle Whitaker, educational psychologist, mental health therapist, parent educator, and author. And so tonight we have a panel discussion with um, our guest, talking, bringing hope um, to moms who are struggling with despair over what is happening in our community to Black men and their Black sons. So let me introduce our panelists. We have Mr. Lewis Good, who is uh, owner and uh, of Good Looks Barbershop. He is um, the owner and operator of Good Looks Barbershop. We have um, Dr. Lawson Howard, who is the owner of Better Days Chiropractic Clinic and the president of Southeast Little League Baseball. We have Pastor Montgomery, who is chief chaplain at the Department of Veteran Affairs and the pastor of Willow Ridge Baptist Church. And we have Mr. Greg Yarbrough, who is a community advocate for parents and children and has worked with um, kids who have, or yeah, kids who have um, behavioral difficulties. So thank you guys for joining me tonight and we'll jump in and get get started. How's everybody doing tonight? Oh, well, everything going good, great. Bless. Okay, so one of the questions that I hear a lot of moms asking is, when do they talk to their sons? At what age do they start to have the conversations with their sons about race and racism and being a black boy in America? So who wants to tell, <laughs> tackle this question first? <laughs> well, I'll just say, um, whenever they start to spend any amount of time away from home, would be a good time to, to have those conversations because you never know what they'll be exposed to when they go to other households, you know, that's that 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 should start as early as elementary, you know. When they start to be around other other races and other elements, um, it's it's just a you know, and it and the conversation is starting to get earlier and earlier. You know, you might back in the day you might wouldn't have started until high school, but now, you know, I, I believe elementary is is a, is a crucial and a critical age to start to have that conversation about race. And about you know some of the some of the you know some of the things that you may see may start to see in society. So elementary now starts. Some elementaries have pre-K. So are you saying pre-K? Well, probably not pre-K, but maybe around maybe third or fourth grade, they that that conversation should should, should start to start to formulate and take place. Okay. Are you all of the same? Is everybody of the same mindset earlier? I agree with that. I agree with that with that assessment. Okay. Well, well, with me, you know, I've been coaching in the community for years, doing baseball and little league football. And, you know, I like to work with the kids at an early age. So with T ball, we start taking kids ages four through six. Flag football, same thing, ages four through six. So at an early age, I'm speaking to parents and the kids in the community on how to conduct themselves around others. The reason is because there are so many there's so many times that we're in a league and with other leagues that may be an entire Hispanic league or may be an entire white league like Paraland. I have to educate our parents on how they should conduct themselves and how our kids should conduct themselves as well when they're at those ballparks, when we are visitors, because it's easy to fit the description or be accused of 
you know, vandalizing things or taking things. We're the first to be blamed. So I make sure I educate the parents with a code of conduct and start, you know, informing them that they need to teach their kids about how to discipline and conduct themselves in our fields and when we're on the road around others. And that's four to six years old. Four to six. Yeah. Mr. Good. I, feel, I mean, is, is there a code of conduct that you have at the, at the Little League, what you're basing it off of, or just like like normal behavior? Yeah, so it's, I mean, there's a code of conduct that, that Little League, you know, uh, requires us to have the parents to fill out. So, you know, there's like a list of commandments that they should follow on, you know, how, you know, they should discipline themselves and how they shouldn't discipline the kids during the game and, and, and at the field. So it's just, it just a few parameters that, that are reminders. But, but, uh, but is that, is that, um, does that fall on all, all the parks different, different like, like Pearland, like the Spanish neighborhoods, does everybody follow the same parameters? Does everybody get the same guidelines right, you, or is it just how we supposed to be perceived? It's, it's, it should, it's, it's across the board. So that's okay. something that's, that's, that's standard. You know, okay. I, I've had situations where we may have been in Galena Park and the kid and burned a trash can and, and we got accused of it. <laughs> okay, okay. Because the only, only reason I said that because like, before, like I say right before all this riot kind of started, I mean, during the corona, I was still kind of the same. But but since I watched the, uh, the guy uh, get killed or whatever, I kind of started paying attention to like, like who are we trying to be like as far as like, are we comparing ourselves? Are, are we trying to see how we look to white people? Or are we trying to see how we look? That's why I was asking about the code of conduct. That's why I was asking about that question. Because it's, it's, it's across the board. Oh, it's across. Okay. Well, as long as it's across the board, I'm, I'm fine. I just kind of, at this point, I just kind of, you know, I, we, we, we love to say, because I was on a Facebook uh, post not too long ago and somebody was saying, um, was basically saying, like, like, they don't mind the protest, but as far as the looting, you, you know, look how we look. But I mean, who do we, who are we setting our standards to? Of? I mean, so, I mean, who are we trying to compare ourselves to? You know, if it, you know, that's that's just my that's my uh, take on it. So, one of the things that I hear um, consistently from moms, and this has really been since, because you know, this has been happening. Black men have been being killed at the hands of police and just arbitrarily for a long time. But I think when I really started to hear moms talk about fear was when um, the case with Ahmaud Arbery and he's just running. Um, he's, I mean, it wasn't even police. He's just running in his neighborhood. And that's when I really started to hear a lot of, you know, black moms start, start to talk about fear. And so how do you keep, um, so I'll just say for myself, cause I have sons. Um, how do you keep a mom who has boys? Because when you start to get fearful, you start to hover and overprotect and not allow them room to grow and space to do the things that typical kids do because you're afraid and you don't have any control. So how do you, you know, what would you tell a mom who's like, well, I just won't let him go anywhere. I'll just keep him in the house. That way I can control the situation. Well, yeah, we, we, on a perfect day, that's good. I mean, I mean, I think everybody would like to do that. I mean, that really would work out perfectly. Everybody would just, you know, do govern like that. But then it's like once they get outside and, like I say, every household is different. So that's that's the problem. That's why you know, 
I wish it was a code of conduct that everybody can kind of be the same, which would be fine, but that's the problem. Once they get outside, I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's different once they get outside your home. Well, and, and I think one of the elements that we have to deal with uh, nowadays is that back in the day, um, there was a community element to our upbringing where we kind of looked out after each other. If somebody, if, if somebody, if somebody of an of, of an older generation saw you do something wrong, they had the right to correct you, because your parents pretty much trusted them because they were part of the community. All right. Nowadays, I feel that we don't we don't have that community element like we used to have. So as far as having each other's back, that's where we that's where we've kind of gone astray, and we've never needed it more than we needed in these hostile times because of, 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 what's, of what's basically in the White House and our leadership, we have to now work towards getting that community element back because if not, it's kind of like each man is on an island and we, 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 can't, we, can't, we can't survive like that. I'm reminded of the scripture because I am a pastor and in the book of Exodus where the birth of Moses is described in the second chapter of Exodus. It talks about his birth. It talks about Pharaoh's intention to kill all of the firstborn of Israel and how Moses' parents, and particularly his mother, how they preserved him and how they kept him, how they sh sheltered him, shall we say. But in that third verse of Exodus 2, it says, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes when she could no longer hide him. And I think that parallel to what we're talking about today, there will come a time when the parent can no longer hide the child, when we can no longer be there for them in person in every walk of life. And as the brothers have said, that age varies. Someone already said as soon as they leave home. You know, I have a little grandson that's just going to daycare. It's not too early to talk to them even now. Once our children reach a point where they have to interact with others, it's time for them to be prepared to face a worldview that's different from home, to face values that are different, to face principles and teachings that are different from what we have taught them ourselves. So I think it's as early as they begin to interact with others. So, so for me, Rochelle, I think what's important is that, you know, we got to remember that we pick the friends for our kids. And we also choose the neighborhoods and the schools that they live in and they attend. So me as, you know, a mentor in the community, that's the first thing I would talk to the mothers and say, you can control certain things. Now, if you want your child to be protected and you want to have that kind of upbringing and bond and community protection, you probably want to put them in a, a community that people look like you. But at mm -hmm. times we feel that we have to run to the other side in order to, you know, get a better education and to feel safer in certain other neighborhoods. And then at the end of the day, when the kids start getting railroaded or the coaches don't need them for the athletics anymore, you know, then we start to complain. But to me, I think it's important that we choose our kids' friends. We choose their coaches. 
we choose the schools correctly. We choose the neighborhoods more wisely. And then we don't have to worry about, you know, cohabitating as much with others that really don't want us to be there. I think you make a, a good point. I asked my dad, who is 71, he grew up in Mississippi in a small town back when, you know, there was Jim Crow and segregation. And I asked him, he has three other brothers. I said, well, you know, I asked him about my grandmother. I said, well, how did she, you know, was she fearful? What did she, how did she get through? And he said, we had this thing called the railroad tracks. We stayed on our side of the railroad tracks. And he said, if you didn't stray from the, you know, if you didn't go to the other side, you didn't have as much to be concerned about. He said, no, yes, there were people, he said, if you, you know, if you had to worry about if you're traveling and you're on the road by yourself, he said, a lot of times, you know, boys, men would come up missing and you, they wouldn't know what would happen. I mean, there would be no closure, but you know, they knew what had happened. But for the most part, if they stayed on their side of the tracks within their community, he said there wasn't, you know, a whole lot of issue. And so you all have all spoken about community and how important that is. And so I think that that's something really important that um, I think Dr. Howard, you said it when you talked about um, sometimes we forget or we want to do better. So we put ourselves in communities where we are the minority and not the majority um, wanting to put ourselves in better situations or circumstances. And, you know, I, I guess just not thinking about thinking about it in its totality, right? Um, um, so something else that was brought to my attention, I um, I was talking, having this conversation with my dad and my uncles, and I asked them about, um, my uncle made a good point. He's almost 80. He said, you know, I'm a black man. He said, my, my, my dad and my grandfather taught me certain things. He said, but and he said, I, I'm aware of those things. He said, but I don't wake up every morning in fear. He said, I can't live my life like that. And he said, everything that happens, I don't internalize that. So where I understand that, you know, as a clinician, I get, okay, you don't internalize it. But as a mom, I'm trying to figure out what can I, how do I put that in my boys? How do I teach my sons not to internalize the fact that, um, I'm, and so this, I'm just going to be honest. You know, black men are, are like the most hated um, or despised uh, people on the earth. How do you keep, how did you all manage? And then what did your moms do to kind of help you not internalize that? Well, it comes from the talk to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things that my mom taught me, because uh, I'm, 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 I'm product of a single mom myself, um, one of the things that she's instilled in me was that the main objective is for you to come home every day. It's not necessarily the objective for you to be right. Okay. You can be right and end up dead, but you can, you can, you can not necessarily be wrong, but you can compromise and you can come home every day. And then once you get home, we'll tackle whatever it is together, but I can't tackle it if you don't come home. So one of the things that that I think that we can can teach the younger generation is you may be right, but not at the time. It might be the right time, but it might not be the right place. You you know you may have to bite your tongue when you're out there, you know, in the community or you're out there away from home. But you you have to have you have to have some restraint on your tongue. And, and you have to more or less, you know, 
do what you have to do to make it home and then tell me the story, explain it to me, and then we'll deal whatever it is together. But one of the issues that I think a lot of the young generation is they so, they're so caught up with getting their point across and being right that they're losing sight of the bigger picture. So that was, that was one of the conversations that my mom had with me when I was growing up because I did grow up in a, in a predominantly Caucasian area and those are one of the conversations that she had with me was that, you know, you may be right, but now that may not be the time to prove your point. Come home, let's discuss it, and then we'll tackle the issue together. Okay. So is that something common among all of you all that your mom had that kind of conversation with you? Yes, my yeah. parents uh, happened to have been born blind, physically blind both mother and father. And I don't say that to evoke sympathy, but I'm simply saying that to say that they, they couldn't see with their natural eyes. But we would have regular dialogue. It may not be that formal sit down in a classroom type of dialogue, but our parents were always talking to us always preparing us, always letting us know that the world out there may or may not be like the world that we're accustomed to in the home. So I'm agreeing with what each of these gentlemen have said. We need to have conversations with our, our children and it needs to start early. And again, being the pastor that I am, I, the book of Proverbs is an excellent example. That whole book the book of Proverbs was, was written in the uh, format of a parent, a father, and then also a mother talking to their sons, talking to them about life, what to expect. And so, yes, have conversations with your children and have them on a regular basis. And honestly, you have to start early because when they reach a certain age, it's difficult. <laughs> to have those conversations, but we don't stop trying, but start early. So for me, Rochelle, I wanna, I wanna hit on that word you, uh, you mentioned, to eternalize, you know, to never show fear, to keep it inside. So you're right, we are at the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the barrel in today's society. You know, when it comes to black men, you know, we fear, you know, we're not respected, and you know, we're treated like low-class citizens when it comes to you know, uh, others, whether it's male or female. Now, my stepfather is the person, you know, that taught me how to handle the police and how, you know, to make it home safely. And in doing so, you know, I definitely had to learn how to internalize my feelings, swallow my pride so I can make it home safely. Even when I know that, you know, things were being unjust. And when you're from a community like Fifth Ward in South Park, you see a lot of that. I saw it in Fifth Ward. I thought things got a little better when we got to South Park. But then you start seeing, you know, some of the same things due to the, you know, the drugs in the community. So, you know, when you're labeled and categorized, you got to know when you leave that door that, you know, it's my job to show restraint, to make sure that I persevere so I can make it home. Opposed to understanding that I know the laws, I know the rules, but you pull me over because I'm riding in a nice car on some nice rims with tinted windows 
that doesn't mean that I'm a thug or that I'm a drug dealer. I just like these kind of cars, this neighborhood I come from. But we had to learn that even though we like those cars, we left our neighborhood to go downtown to hang out and party with the kids from Elkins, Health Professions, or Lamar, Senior Girls, that we had a beam on our head. But we knew that there are certain things that other people would be able to do, we wasn't going to do, or we wasn't going to go to those areas. And it's just something that, you know, we had to be taught. And I thank God that my stepfather, Mr. Bibbs, was able to put that in me. He saw a lot of that in the military. Yeah, I think that, I think that was well said. I think, and, and that is well said, but I think right now, I think I think the problem might be policing. I think, I, I think it needs to be a change as far as, I mean, I really think right now, I think, like say, we, we, we use example, like we say South Park, Sunnyside. I feel that when officers come on the force, they should put them in certain areas that they're used to. I, I just don't like putting like, like I said, a guy might be from Jasper, Texas, or might be from Conroe, and then they put him in the inner city. It's just not fair because he's already afraid. So I think policing, is, 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 it should be a big issue as far as putting the correct officers in the correct neighborhood. That's number one because that's how, the, like my man just said, how the profiling starts with the cars. I'm pretty sure if, if I was a police officer right now, any of you all on the panel, we'd be able to, we, we might see a guy drive by a nice car. We might say, okay, that might be his mom's car. Or he might just be, it might be his car. I won't be even assembled as far as he stole a car or he's a dope dealer. So I just think it starts with policing. That's just my that's my my assessment on it. I think if something needs to be done with policing, like within like the first of the year. But the issue is that many, many of the officers don't stay in the neighborhood. They don't stay that's, in the that's, that's what I mean. They don't stay in the neighborhood, so they don't really, you know, they can't even adapt to that person. Like, like I say, if because like once we go home, like, you know, like, like a lot of people live, live in suburban neighborhoods, once you go home, you, you leave that, that area or whatever, if you're a police officer, you don't even, you know, the person you patrol, you don't even see it on a daily basis. So you don't even know how to even deal with that person. But you know, it go, it's, it's bigger than just a neighborhood, you know? Uh -huh. You know, I play I play baseball at Grambling State University. So when you go to Grambling, you're going uh -huh. to 59, 79, and 20. So when you hit Loop 224 in Nagadoshes, exactly. And you got a grade 98 Oldsmobile with tinted windows and music in the trunk or whatever. They're gonna stop police, you. They're gonna stop you. And I'm a, I'm I'm in an honors dorm on honor roll on an athletic scholarship. You exactly. know, but every time I went back to school, I got pulled over by the state troopers and would strip everything out of my car and leave it sitting there on the side of the road for me to put it in by myself just because I fit the description. Now, after a couple of years of that, you know, you get upset and you like, man, you know. You want to say something, but at the same time, you know that you're putting yourself in a situation for them to pull the trigger, police brutality. So you just deal with it, so you can get to school and get that education. So do we? So do we tell our kids? So do we give our kids a crutch in this vicious society and tell them like like a police officer, you know, stop you? Do we automatically tell them, you know, just to abide by it, or can you stay? I mean, I feel if you if you're not I guess if you like, like how you was going back to school, you was clean, wasn't nothing, wasn't nothing, no drugs, nothing in the car. So can you stand your ground as far as speaking your piece, as far as saying why you put them y'all? Or would you teach your kids, you know, say, hey, man, just let them do what they want to do, or just, you know, that that's the issue too. Right. So, you know, in those situations, you know, I had to know that. I mean, I took a criminal justice class, and I was a biology major. Right. I took a criminal justice class because uh -huh. that's how bad it was. Because we up north near Ruston, Louisiana. So, 
you know, it was a situation where it's like, I need to know my rights and I need to know the rules and the laws. But even though exactly. you know the rules and the laws, they know them as well. And they know yeah. how to go around them to, you know, create that aggressiveness, to make you seem aggressive, to start that, you know, interaction where they can draw down on you or just create any kind of scene to make it seem like you're being aggressive and attacking them. So again, I learned to show restraint, mm. relax, let them do their job. They may, you know, embarrass me a little bit, but at the end of the day, I live to keep moving to get that education and to live yeah. to get to my family, my kids, or to get back home to my mother back then. Gotcha, gotcha. I want to take a break to tell you about the Raising Sons Manual. This ebook style guide consists of conversation starters, guides, and exercises to assist you with navigating the same tough topics and conversations we discuss on this podcast in real time. If you or your child has been hesitant about therapy, or if you just need something tangible and practical to put into practice, this is the manual for you. I am offering a free sample to all listeners of the podcast. Click the link in the show notes to download. So let me ask you a question because um, Lawson, you you brought up a good point. You said, and I can only imagine that you all have to be angry. You know, you have to be angry because this is just something that happens over and over and over again. What do you do? What does a mom, how does a mom help her son deal with that anger? Where does she, where does she how does she help him put it somewhere? I think one of the gentlemen earlier said constant dialogue. You know what I'm saying? They gotta be able to process that, you know, with you, with other males, you know what I'm saying? It's got to be, they have to have an outlet because if not, then that's just, that's just like a a, a kid that's waiting to explode. But um, I apologize. Go ahead, Brother Lawson. I, 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 I stepped in there. Go ahead, I'm sorry, sir. All right, it's an open panel, brother, but the question is, how does a mom help her child deal with that anger? So honestly, Rochelle, what I've been doing with, with my boys and the kids that I mentor, I try to make sure I find good mentor programs for them. Put them in certain situations where, you know, they get a chance to bounce ideas around off black men or people that look like them that can tell them about their experiences so they can learn how to deal with those situations when they encounter them in the future. Because nine times out of 10, they're probably going to encounter some kind of racism or, you know, uh, social injustice. And if they're prepared for it, then they know how to handle it. Okay, I've seen this before. Okay, I've heard this before. So you got to start teaching those kids that at an early age. And then again, get them in certain programs like, you know, me and Brother Yarbrough, the Omegas have the Lamp Lighters program. The Omegas, we, we, meant, we got a mentorship program at Thompson Elementary that the parents can sign the kids up to. Find a good coach that, you know, has uh, been through different, you know, trials and tribulations in life. Because, I mean, where to get around on, you know, where you need to put your kids at to get that good direction. So, to me, mentorship is something that the mothers need to start thinking about. Yeah, yeah, you made, you made a good point. And what you're saying, I agree with, because you go, you almost got to, and, and like like you just said, like a, like a it could be Little League football, it could be base, it could be anything, but it has to be some kind of game. Because every football game, every baseball game, a lot of this stuff has life lessons anyway. You got the referee acting like the police officer, so you can be able to, to kind of challenge your your, your, uh, your anger. I mean, your coach might, and, and a lot of and coaches kind of play games, which is a good thing. As far as being a father, they might tell a kid to, to, to basically do this. 
and you just really helps the kid out, especially when, when you got a hot head or a kid's a little, little passive. All those life lessons kind of help. So really, and, and when they went, when, 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 and then also when they um when the referee the umpire throw penalties out there, those are life consequences. So we're just good too, you know. So you got to get them involved kind of early so they can kind of act out their frustration. They can like like my man just said, they can know how to act when something actually really happens. Versus it's almost too. You know, you can almost do it again. I keep stressing the informality of it. Sometimes we think, and I do, I, I recognize and I have the greatest respect for professionals, mental health professionals, counselors, pastors, preachers, teachers, therapists. We need all of these people. Mm -hmm. But our parents would also, they would sit down and talk to us, yeah. whether at the dinner table or sitting around in front of the television or sitting outside on the porch. They would find a way to engage us in conversation. My parents would give me illustrations. Well, Junior, let's suppose that you were at school. Let's pretend that I'm the teacher and you're the student. And, and they would walk us through these exercises. What I'm saying is having that regular conversation, giving your children an opportunity to show you how they would respond in various situations. And then they would also test us. They would say, okay, you can go outside, but be back by six o'clock. There was nothing magical about six o'clock, nothing. But they wanted us to learn how to be obedient, how to follow rules, how to follow guidelines. Yes, we live in an unjust world. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. There was a fence at the end of the street that I lived on. I lived on a street called Wabash Street. And at the end of Wabash, it was the same street, but there was a cyclone fence at the end of that street. And on the other side of that fence was where the white people lived. And it was called Sunset Avenue, same street. But we knew that you don't cross that fence. And so I'm simply saying, no, I'm not talking about not teaching your children self-respect, self-worth, self-dignity but talking to them and helping them to know how to navigate in an unfriendly world. That's the duty of a parent. Do you think, does it matter whether a mom has this conversation with her son or does it need to come from a male figure? I was talking to a police officer um, and he said a lot of times when boys get to a certain age you know your mom can tell you something and and a boy will say oh mom you're just being extra you just you know you're just worrying he's he said that he feels like boys need to hear from other men that have lived to tell the tale who, or who had life similar life experiences what do you all think i think that's true i agree i, I think that once once a young man reaches a certain age um is, 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 is it has to be, he, he has to have a certain type of validation. And that validation comes from a male figure. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, once, once you know, he can come and, you know, hopefully that mom, you know, they can find a male figure in that young man's life that they trust. You know what I'm saying? If you can find a, a male figure in that life that they trust, then they could say, well, you know, you, you probably need to go talk to uh, such and such, you know what I'm saying? He may give you some good advice or he may be a good mentor for you. But once that, that age, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, 
they they need that validation from another male figure. You know, it would be good, you know, in an ideal situation, you know, maybe a mom could find a male figure that they could trust, that they can um, kind of lean on for guidance in that type of situation. That would that would definitely help out a lot. So I have a question from a, uh, someone who's watching and they kind of, you all kind of answered it, but I want to ask it again, because maybe they need some more specific things. They wanted to know, you know, how do you help your son deal with, with, with the anger, the anger of the injustice of being them? <laughs> I mean, I know we've talked about sports. Um, we've talked about getting them involved. We've talked about mentorship. Is there anything else that a mom can do to help her son deal with the anger, especially if this mom is a um, single parent. Maybe she doesn't have a lot of support. Um, what you know? What can she do? I wouldn't. I wouldn't kill the thunder if the kid. If the kid is, is alpha male and he got it's that kind of thunder. I wouldn't kill it. I mean, I let him have it. I mean, that's what he's born with. I mean, he might be a leader later, later on down the line. I wouldn't kill it. But how do you how do you manage it though? Because anger. Anger by itself is not problematic, but anger uncontrolled can lead to all kinds of things. Well, what's the, what's the three that we, the, the three gentlemen on the panel that I see right now, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have a problem with a, with a, with a, with a kid being aggressive or, or the kid has, I mean, because you can just channel that in, in a lot of different ways. I feel, I feel a lot of leaders, I mean, have anger problems. It, it's nothing wrong with having, it being aggressive. I, I don't think, I mean, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather, I mean, I mean, you can all be passive at times, but but I mean, if you're aggressive and or, or anger, that I mean, I don't have a problem. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. Not in 2020, I don't. So with so with me, so with me, Rochelle, uh, it goes back to that key word, and you you're right, we answered it once, but it goes back to that key word, which is mentorship. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, a boy needs a man in his life. When he get to a certain threshold, he has to have a man in his life. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's her man, whether it's an uncle, a brother, pastor, a coach, he has to have a man in his life to help guide him through these situations. Because when I'm at that baseball field and football field, most of the time, I see I see the moms bringing the kids to the practices because most of our black women are single parent moms and they don't know how to raise a man. You know, they don't know how to tell that young man, you know, how to deal with that anger, you know, um, in life or that anger that's due to racism. Some good outlets, once again, sports, poetry, you know, running, reading, writing. You know, I think a good book to start introducing to the kids early is The Miseducation of the Negro. I think that when they start reading that and see what was going on back then in the 50s, 60s, and even before then, and see what's going on now, they'll start learning how to you know, channel those emotions and how to deal with it and say, oh, okay, I see the game. It's been going on for years. So this is what I need to do to not let them knock me off my game and make me show those signs of weakness, which is getting angry and lashing out. And I, and I, and I, I agree with that because the time I grew up, you know, we didn't have internet. So, I mean, these kids, are, are, they, they, they got so much stuff on their hand, they can grab all kind of, like my man said, the, the books and stuff, which is good. So I feel that the kids right now, they have a, they have a more advantage than what I had growing up. So I feel they should, they, they need to just, I just feel they just need to like, like, like get more black history books, things like that. Like my man said, once they find out who their true self is, 
and who they really are, I think they'll, you can really channel that, channel that anger. And be, like I said, being a leader. I'm still big on that, being a leader. And have self worth for ourselves. I mean, that pro black stuff. I, I'm kind of down with. I, I really am. The time we're living in right now, and, it, it, and, it's not, it's, and you shouldn't be ashamed of who we are, our color of our skin, because we can't change it. So I just feel we should use that melanin and, and just go go right with it. I feel. I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that I would like to, you know, introduce. Uh, you know, that's why I kind of like Malcolm. I kind of lean toward the teachers of Malcolm X and Marvin Garvey. And they talk about, you know, self-sufficiency and, and us depending on ourselves. You know what I'm saying? If they, if they could learn that at a young age, that would be toward a tremendous advantage. You know what I'm saying? Because that's basically what this world has come full circle to that very component. We need to depend on ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, Black people have always um, you know, taking our, our money and spend it in other communities while they get rich, you know. So, you know, once you teach them about economics, once you teach, teach them about how this game of capitalistic, um, how they take, take advantage of you, you know what I'm saying, and how you need to, you know, look within for all your, all your guidance and you don't necessarily have to look for anybody to give you anything. If you can look within, and help, you know, and kind of channel that in a positive direction, then, you know, you'll go a long way in help building yourself to be self-sufficient. So I'm going to jump into a more uh, spiritual question. And I want to, for the mom who's like, I'm going to church, I'm praying for my son, I'm, I'm praying to, to figure out how to deal with him, but it's not working, <laughs> or she feels like it's not working. Um, Pastor Montgomery, what would you say to that mom? Thank you for that question. Prayer is communication. It is, um, it's dialogue. It's dialogue with a, 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 a person to their human, to their heavenly father. So when we pray, first of all, we're talking to a God who already knows what we need even before we ask him. And sometimes the answers to prayer are not necessarily the answers that we were expecting. And so what I would say to a mother who feels that her prayers are not necessarily being answered is to continue in prayer, to be persistent. There are many scriptures that talks about being persistent in prayer. The widow and uh, who went before the unjust judge, she continued to pray night and day. Hannah who prayed continually that God would give her a child. Praying without ceasing, praying fervently, and then also waiting until God responds in his own time. Now that may sound kind of idealistic, but the word of God is clear. The Lord hears and answers prayer. So I would encourage a, a mother to continue to pray. Make sure that it's however we're doing our part as well as waiting for God to do his part. Now I can be more specific, but that's a general principle that I would follow. Okay. Anybody else on the panel want to take that question or you all think Pastor Montgomery <laughs> wrapped it up? I'd like, I like, I like, I like to say a few things on that. So okay. I just want to be clear though. Um, mm -hmm. 
she wants to know, what do you say to, I mean, the question is, what do you say to the mom that feels that the church is not working? Prayer. Her son, her, the prayer, prayer is not working? Mm -hmm. So you're asking that question. If a person feels that prayer is not working, examine themselves. See, indeed, sometimes the, okay, I'll give you an example. We think that the prayer is not being answered because it's not the answer that we were looking for or the answer did not come in the packaging that we were expecting it to come in. So what I'm saying is God answers prayer and sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is not right now. So we have to condition ourselves, first of all, to understand that God is not a vending machine. You know, you put your quarter in and you press the button and you get a package of donuts. God sometimes delays in answering prayer so that our faith can be strengthened. The scripture again that talks about the woman whose daughter was sick, she said, Lord, have mercy on my daughter. She's vexed with an evil spirit. And the Lord said, I came not for, for you, but I came for the household of Israel. And this woman was insulted, but she put her pride aside and she continued to pray. So what I'm saying is, we can't necessarily say that God did not answer prayer because sometimes his answer is not the answer that we anticipate. We have to be willing to allow his answer to comfort our hearts, but he knows what's best. Okay. So for me, for me what, I would, what I would tell that good sister is that she needs to communicate with the child and allow him to express himself about his goals, his fears, and his wants. You know, I try to teach my son that, you know, he's a king and he comes from greatness. You know, he also, she also needs to let him know that he can't quit. You know, you got to continue the prayer. You know, seeking ye shall find, knocking the door shall be opened unto thee. He has to seek, he has to continue to prayer and continue to pray and not just expect that if I pray this one time that I don't have to put the work in. That if I pray, this white God is gonna fall from the sky and come grant all my wishes to me. It takes work. It takes continued prayer. And I would I would inform her that that she had once she once she gets that in his head, then he'll understand that okay, I need to continue to pray, but I also have to put the work in so I can receive the fruits of my labor. I hope that helps. Very good. I heard it said that we pray like everything depends on God and we work like everything depends on us. You know, did you say, what, what God did you say? What, what did you say? I missed that part. You say, no, it was just an expression that I heard. No, no, uh, the, the doctor, the other doctor. What did you say? Lord, you say a white God? You said a white God? Because he ain't coming. A white God not going to come in the sky. He's not. I agree. So I, I wanted agree. to ask. Go ahead. Go ahead, and Mr. I, I agree. And see, and see, and, and that's very important what he said. And, and, and that's what kind of what I was talking about earlier about the books he's talking about. I'm, I'm going to be honest with myself. 
Um, when oh. I was 18, well, when I was 10, I found out about Marcus Garvey. I, I had an encyclopedia one time, but I didn't have it in that. I'm a lot of, I'm 50 something years old. And so I had an um, encyclopedia book with Marcus Garvey. I told my mom, I said, Mom, who is this guy? Because he, to me, he impressed me. He had the medals, he had all the stuff. This is 19, this is like in the 70s, this back in the time when KC and Sunshine Band was playing. This is like 74, 75. A lot of y'all too young for this. But it was it was a time when that was going disco time. So I asked my mom, I said, who is this guy? And my mom told me, because I'm from a single, single parent household as well. And my mom said, uh, no, that guy crazy. You, you don't even know about him. And I closed the book because I trust what my mom said. Well, we go, go, 70s, 80s. And I, I was, I, I was, I was went to the Marines, I was in the Marines. And it, and I was overseas, and I got hold of this book. And it had on there the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, I've heard of Malcolm X, but I never wrote, read his autobiography. And man, when I read that, man, it was like a light. I mean, I was it just blew me away. I was like, man. So I just wish if I would have caught that at, at 10 or 9, man, don't tell me what I'd be right now, man, if I could caught that early because... I'm not being, I'm not, and I'm trying not trying to be hard. Don't get me wrong, Pastor, or anybody on this panel, but but you know, a lot, lot, lot of you rarely find these churches, man, that really preach on uh, 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 pro black black stuff. You rarely, you know, to me, you know, and I'm wrong for that. If I'm saying that, I don't know. I apologize or show me a way that I can hear it. But you rarely hear that a lot, you know. That you t you, you tap a little bit with Israel, you know, and I know what you. I, I know what you meant by that, you know, because I feel we are the Hebrew Israelites, and I just feel that once, like 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 Lawson said, once we realize who we are as a people, I think we'll be a lot better. And and and, and I think kids really appreciate, you know, showing them in the Bible. And I try to tell my son too, one, show them in the Bible, or everybody you talking about are really some black people, man. That really you ought to see how they light come in their face, man. If I would have got there at a young age, man. It probably would have blew me away. I'll tell you what I'd be doing right now. Hmm. So what I hear you guys saying, well, what I've heard Mr. Good and Dr. Howard. And I, don't want, I don't want to disrespect anybody by no means. I'm I'm a Christian as well, but I just, you know, I just, I just, it's just what I was raised with as far as Christian, I didn't I didn't get a lot of I didn't get a lot of, you know, black people in the Bible until I got older. And I feel that I should have was getting that at five and seven and nine and twelve. So what I hear you, what I what I've heard you all say that it's important. So as a mom, it's important for me to start teaching my sons about black yeah. history, having them read books about yeah. not um, black history, not black history. That's black history, world history. So once they realize what that is, I mean that's gonna turn the chapter on, on some. But the only bad thing about it, once you give it to them, you gotta get every. There's a lot of stuff good with it. Because we are really some powerful people, man. We're we are some powerful people. So we have a question from a mom. She says, "Do you feel that there is a such thing of uh, such thing of sharing too much about injustice to young boys?" No, instance, no, no. I have I a fourteen-year-old, and I have not allowed him to see the office pinned down George. See the officer pinned down George Floyd because I'm concerned about his psychological well-being. However, um, do you think a boy? Oh, however. Yeah, Think that a, a boy at that age can maybe handle more than a mom would believe he can um a mom likely holds back more than most men would from their sons so her question is 
is there is there a such thing of sharing too much about injustice to young boys? And then she talks about why she didn't let her son, why she hasn't let her son see the officer pinning him down. I, I feel she should show him. I feel she should show him because to me, the two, this is my opinion. And I'm gonna get this from Dick Gregory. That I, I, and, I, and I read up on that and I, and I feel it's true. The two, for me, the two most powerful forces of this world is the black female and the black church. So I feel that if you got a black mother and she's with that son, if he's dealing, able to deal with her or his spouse, once he gets married, hopefully he'll marry somebody black. Cause I'm, I'm pro, I'm, I'm rare pro black. I want somebody, I want a black man to marry a black female. So I feel that, and I apologize if I'm offending anybody, but um, I feel they should marry black black females. And and, and and once and once they once they see that black female, if they can deal with that black female, you're showing them what, what happened to George, and that's nothing because you because but but doctor by, by you being a, a black female, you know, I mean, I feel just how you think men how we hard to deal with. I feel by you all being black women, I think you all are hard to deal with too. So I feel by a black boy if he can deal with his mother raising them in a proper way, of course, I feel showing what they what the injustice they did to him. I, I, no sense of sugarcoating it because Emmett Till's mother is back in the 60s. Emmett Till, she had an open casket and I watched videos on YouTube and it was all kind of kids coming to that, uh, watching that, watch, watch that open casket and it was little kids in there. So if little kids can see it, or that little magnet girl who got bombed in that church, she's a little girl that's Sunday school, that Sunday school kid, the older kid. So if they can experience all that, I mean, I, I say pour it on the shore to them. What do, what do the other men on the panel think? Do you think there's, that's too much, not enough? Uh, not, not not enough, but maybe too much to show to a 14 year old boy. So I think, so I think it's important to realize that in, in today's society that we live in, you can't sugarcoat these kids because what she may not show him, I guarantee each and every one of his friends has an iPhone or some kind of phone to expose him to porn, rap, nudity, and he's probably already seen it even if she hadn't shown it to him, especially if he has his own phone. I think it's important to you know, share certain information and in movies to them, even about slavery. And I think it's important to show him Emmett Till, Rodney King being beat to show them that these are the same things that were going on back in the day that's happening now. So things haven't changed, son. So I need you to be aware that when I send you away from this home, you need to protect yourself. You need to understand that it ain't no crystal stay out here. When you leave this porch, you are viewed as a threat to society by most people. All she's doing is sheltering him to where he may be one of the ones that get in one of those situations with the laws. And he feels that, well, I got the right and I'm entitled to speak to the police the same way the white race has the right to. And if you don't teach them that you can't do everything that other people do, that's when we get to having problems and seeing our kids hurt. I like say, say, say that again one more time. Say that I, I like that. I, I, that's my say it one more time. What did you say again? I think it's important that our mothers teach our kids that when they leave the home, uh, no, 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 fear. uh, no, no, about the part about did you say something about about uh, 
what what'd you say at the end of that again? The end, what you say at the end? I'm sorry, to cut you off. What you say at the end of that? That there, that there are some of our kids think that they have the uh, power to speak to the police the same way as other races do. Uh huh. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah. we just got to be no, careful. I, got, no, I, got, I, got, I got that. Yeah, I like that. I guess I'm still stuck on this book of Proverbs. <laughs> In this thirty-first chapter of Proverbs, which is a well-known scripture, talks about a, a virtuous woman, a prizes far above rubies, the heart of a husband that safely trusts in her, and so forth. If you would read the thirty-first chapter of Proverbs. It begins by saying these are the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. His mother taught him about life. His mother taught him about women. His mother taught him about deceitfulness. His mother taught him that he was a prince as one of the brothers had said. His mother taught him where his strength comes from. So we're talking in this context about racism and injustice. And yes, we have to teach our children. And there, uh, much of this teaching is transferred through the mother, particularly in the younger ages. The mother is generally speaking, I know there are exceptions, the one that the child spends most time with in the younger ages. And then as we grow older, as the brother said, we still need that male figure. We need them all the time. But all I'm saying is, yes, we have to talk to our children. We have to teach them. And mothers are not immune. Mothers have a responsibility to even teach their sons. And the King Lemuel's mother was the one that taught him what to expect when he goes out in life, what to look for, in a mate, what to look for in a wife, his mother taught him that. And we have to teach our children the same type of thing. Miss Yarbrough, you want to weigh in? Yeah, um, I, I think that if, if, if he's old enough to experience it when he leaves home, he's old enough for you to teach him about it. Um, he Anytime he leaves outside the house, he could be pulled over by an officer and experience some of the same things that happened to Brother Floyd. So you can't shelter him and think that just because you don't show him, then he'll be he'll he'll be protected from it. You're not protecting him. You're really doing a disservice to him because now he's not equipped with the skills that he needs in case he's he's encounters a confrontation from a law enforcement officer because he hasn't been exposed to and taught to the right way of how to deal with um, how to deal with that situation. So, like I said, if, if if he's old enough to experience it once he leaves your house, then he's old enough for you to teach him about it and, 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 and for him to learn about that particular situation. So, I have um, one last question, and then I'm going to have you guys kind of wrap up. I want to be uh, respectful of your time. At what age does a black boy? become a threat? I'm going to say, I, I, since the pastor has said so well, and, and we go to the Bible, as soon as, soon as, that, soon as that, uh, that firstborn was born, I mean, he was a threat. So I feel when, when Jesus was born, he was a threat. 
when Moses was born, all the Hebrew boy was born, he's a threat. And I feel as soon as we born, we threats. That's just my opinion on it. Okay. As soon as he leaves your sight. I mean, as soon as, at, at, you know, whatever age he leaves your sight and he's exposed to the outside world, as a black young man, he's considered a threat. Because even, even, at, even at a young age, somebody's looking at him in the aspect of he's going to grow up one day. Mm. So that, from, from, that, um, from that moment on and from that perception, um, you know, from, from society's eyes, as soon as he leaves your, your eyesight or as soon as he leaves your presence, he's considered a threat. I even see it in these labels that are sometimes placed on our children. Even as the brothers have said, at very young ages, black young boys are labeled. They are uh, stereotyped. They're put into certain categories. They are treated a certain way. And it's, it's a sad thing. It, it, it brings tears to my eyes to really think about it. But this systemic racism, this, 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 this problem that we're facing that's becoming more and more apparent every day is a carefully crafted systemic problem that begins early, early, early in life. And again, I go back to Moses, as the brother said, when they saw they could no longer hide and when Moses' mother realized, I can't protect him any longer she put him out there and from that point on he had to face the realities of a real world we should continually train and teach our children that dialogue should start as early as possible so the black child becomes a threat out of the womb Rochelle we are God's chosen people we have the power of the dominant gene to turn this entire world black and brown. We gotta teach our kids, especially our young black men, the importance of that melanin and that dominant gene that they carry, which is the biggest threat. Once they understand that, that they can put an extension to a lot of races, that's where a lot of their fear can come from. Not everyone, but most of the higher rankings, they know that we carry that dominant gene that sparks that fear in other races. Don't ever forget that. Even so, the label of minority, the majority is the minority. Exactly. Or shall exactly. I say the minority is the majority. Exactly. Exactly. Caucasian well, race is not the majority. No, it's not. But see, but see, but see that, but see that car what he did was, what he did was, you know, he, he, he put that, he put that in perspective as far as like the Spanish, they thinking they not black. I mean, that's the problem. If you add every brown and black, we all the majority. Yes. You know, that's the problem. It, but that's that just what he did. And, he, I, and I think he did, he did a great job. I, I will commend that Caucasian for that. He did a great job. But, but, but I, and, 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 and I'm, and I'm, and I, I watch, I, since it's Corona stuff, so I've been watching a lot of YouTube, man. I'm gonna end it with this as far as myself. We gotta understand, we're the sun people. Y'all know about the sun people? I feel we're the sun people. And that white boy was the ice, was the ice people. 
All right, we had everything at our at our at our grass. We had fruit. We had water, fresh streams, fish. We had we had uh we had uh we had everything, man. We had we had all the shea butter. We had everything at our disposal. The white boys in that cold cave, freezing cold. I mean, so we had it all. So I, we are God's chosen people, man. We really are. It's just simple as that. And, and, and I just think we so forgiven and we just allow things to happen. But if we get back to the basics, man, like, 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 like Lawson said, we get back to the basics on who we are. We really are unbelievable people, man. Just as simple as that. And like he said, the power structure and the policy makers, they definitely know who we are as a people. And, and they're afraid of us. You know what I'm saying? So we should be afraid of ourselves. Let them be afraid of us. We don't need to be afraid of them. So I want to thank you gentlemen for um, serving on the panel. One of the things that I know is that um, moms right now are fearful. I hope that um, by asking you, men who have lived to tell the tale and are still here, give them some hope, right? That gives me hope. When I think about back in the day, my, my grandmother said, this is nothing new. Um, and that you know, women, you know, black mothers have been around for a long time dealing with the same kinds of issues with their sons. And so yeah. that gives, that kind of fuels me, that kind of eases my fear, right? Cause I'm, this is nothing new under the sun. But I wanted to bring a panel of men together that are in the community, that are fathers, and that can speak to moms and give them some hope, right? In, in the midst of. And I think that's what you guys have done tonight. And so I appreciate it. Um, I just want to ask you in closing, if there's one thing that you could tell a mom that will lead, that will stay with her um, as we close out, what would that be? Just to give her some hope. Tell him to tell so your like son to marry. Tell a son to marry a black female. Okay, we we're not there yet. We talking about. You know what I'm, a saying, you know what I'm saying when it, when he gets to that point, I'm saying make sure he okay. marries somebody black. Okay, Mr. Yarbrough. Um. I'm gonna just say, um, just stay strong, and just just try to to get a try to get you a good support group. Try try to try to build you uh, a, a community network where you don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, about find you know see try to see if you can find uh, some positive mentorship, some positive role models to surround them with. You know, just in case. Um, he's in a situation where he may not feel like he can talk to you, or at least there's somebody that he can go talk to, and then that person you can trust, and you know that person you know can give him some good advice and some good mentorship. Okay, Mr. Uh, Pastor Montgomery. I'll go back to Proverbs one more time. <laughs> the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment and equality and equity. That's what this book was written about. I would tell a mother to seek the wisdom of God. That's the principal thing. And all that getting, get understanding. Put your trust in God. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. And then your chances of success, your chances of navigating this crooked and perverted world will be much enhanced. You won't be trouble free. 
No, in the world you will have tribulation, but seek the wisdom that comes from God. Dr. Howard, thank you, Pastor Montgomery. Amen. So I'd like to tell that good sister that this is the generation of youth that have the power to change and guide us in the right direction. She just need to give them the tools to bring awareness to this world, to allow them and allow us to be great. You know, we go on, the Bible speaks on, a certain race of people that's going through these things. And it seems like those people that they're describing are black folk. Mm -hmm. So it's only a matter of time. It's, re it's really time for us to come out of that. So if she gives her young black son the tools that he needs to be great and to bring awareness to this country, you'll see a big difference. And the last thing I want her to teach him is to fight with his dollars. Teach him to practice self-help and use those dollars to gain respect and get attention because those dollars, we spend trillions of dollars a year. And if she teaches him how not to have to depend on others for things, then we don't have to worry about so much injustice because then they'll have a voice with their young dollars. Thank you. All right, thank you, man. Thank you. Um, moms have, you. have taken some gems away, I know I have. You all have a good night. I appreciate you doing this. Thank all you right. very much. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. So I hope information from the panel discussion was helpful. This wraps up another episode of the Raising Sons podcast. If you found it helpful, please share and or subscribe. Until next time.